Back in 1981, there was a community of people who lived lives harder than most. They were denied basic human rights. They lived under constant surveillance and were subject to the strict and arbitrary controls of government. These people could own a hot water jug, a radio, an iron and a razor. But if they wanted any other appliance, it had to be approved by an authorised officer. We lived under threat, remarked one resident in his early 20s at the time. It was pretty horrific. This community didn't live in North Korea or in Syria or any other places around the world where these stories are sadly all too common. It was Australia less than four decades ago. Our members of the Yarrabah community, about 40 kilometres south of Cairns. The young man in his 20s, who I just quoted, was Percy Neal. And Percy, like many in his community, wanted change. Wanted the community to have a say over its own destiny. In the late 1970s, he fought hard to be elected chairman of the Yarrabah Council. He fought and agitated for years to establish some degree of autonomy for the community. But that agitation was mostly in vain. One night, Percy lost his temper. In a heated exchange with a white shop owner, he allegedly spat at the man. Although Percy denied it, witness testimony from the shop owner's wife was inconclusive as to whether he spat at all, Percy was arrested. And from his own account, Percy was pretty stroppy. He could well have behaved better. But ask yourself, even if the allegation was true, what would have been a fitting penalty? The Queensland Court of Appeal said six months in prison, three times the sentence handed down by initial, the initial magistrate. The severity of that decision didn't go unnoticed. It was front page of the Courier-Mail, received attention from politicians and the legal profession. Mr Neal's case went all the way to the High Court. Sitting on the bench of the court was Lionel Murphy, a man of compassion, a warm, loving person who spent his life standing up for the little guy. He detested racial discrimination and those who perpetrated it. Manning Clark described him as one of those human beings who want all human beings to have not only life, liberty and the opportunity to pursue happiness, he wants all human beings to have life and have it more abundantly. But Murphy wasn't afraid of the fight. As a lawyer, as Federal Attorney-General, as a High Court Justice, he was a force to be reckoned with. Something tells me that before Justice Murphy in the High Court, the lawyers who were trying to keep Percy in jail might have been a little nervous. Murphy, Murphy was scared. He blasted the magistrate, magistrate, saying that anyone who agitated for change in Aboriginal communities would be under a disadvantage in that magistrate's court. He said the Court of Appeal failed to see that racism is uh, failed in their duty to ensure that racism is not allowed to operate within the judicial system. And then he gave what is perhaps his most famous quote. That Mr Neal was an agitator obviously contributed to the severe penalty. If he is an agitator, he is in good company. Many of the great religious and political figures of history have been agitators. As Oscar Wilde aptly pointed out, agitators are a set of interfering, meddling people who come down to some perfectly contented class of the community and sow the seeds of discontent among them. That is the reason why agitators are so absolutely necessary.
Without them in our incomplete state, there would be no advance towards civilization. Mr. Neal is entitled to be an agitator. So I wonder why Murphy sympathised with an agitator. He was a bit of an agitator himself. Murphy disliked the concept of precedent. The doctrine of precedent, he said, is that when, whenever faced with a decision, you always follow what the last person did who was faced with the same decision. It is a doctrine eminently suitable for a nation overwhelmingly populated by sheep. <laughs> of his 632 decisions on the High Court, 404 were separate judgments, 130 of which were dissenting. Only Michael Kirby, for whom I once worked, had a higher dissent rate. Murphy rejected a knighthood, but proudly accepted the scientific honour of having a supernova named after him, a picture of which he hung on his wall in the place normally designated for the Queen's portrait. Lionel Murphy fought a hostile Senate as Attorney General as he battled for social change. He initiated the Death Penalty Abolition Act 1973. He proposed the bill which led to today's Racial Discrimination Act. He created the Law Reform Commission and the Australian Legal Aid Office. He secularised marriage through the authorisation of civil celebrants. In 1973, he personally led a police raid in the Melbourne headquarters of ASIO. I don't see too many attorneys general doing that these days. Perhaps for good reason. More importantly for today's topic, Murphy introduced the Trade Practices Act 1974, a revolutionary piece of legislation for its time. With the stroke of a pen, the Act made cartels illegal, created offences for the misuse of market power, exclusive dealing, price discrimination, agreements that substantially lessen competition and anti-competitive mergers. For the first time, consumer protection was given stringent legislative support, mandating product safety, giving consumers the ability to bring actions in court. Created the Trade Practices Commission, the precursor to today's Australian Competition and Consumer Commission. It's not surprising that Murphy was a passionate force for competition and consumer protection. Competition is, after all, a fundamentally progressive cause. It is fought by those who do not accept cosy arrangements for monopolists and oligopolists who suck prosperity out of the community, rip off consumers and exploit the most vulnerable. Murphy's Act was much more ambitious than the Act of the Place. With a ferocity that would have made Percy Neal proud, Murphy called the McMahon Liberal Governments Act a token effort and a flimsy facade of government action behind which the commercial ethos of profit at any price would continue unchallenged. We have a great deal to thank Lionel Murphy for, but my concern is that the very threats to competition that he fought against are on the rise again. Changes in the way we think about economics have altered the competition landscape. It's changed the way Murphy's Trade Practices Act, now the Competition and Consumer Act, is interpreted by courts and amended by Parliament. Over the past generation, the net result has been to weaken competition in Australia, to the detriment of the most disadvantaged. This weakening in competition, a weakening of Murphy's principles, has inflamed inequality in Australia. A lack of competition isn't just an issue of efficiency, it can also affect equity. Lionel Murphy was concerned about many things when it came to competition. When you read through his speeches and articles, three major concerns stand out. 
The first was market concentration. In 1965, he told Federal Parliament, it is now clear that we are monopolised to a much greater extent than our other industrialised countries. Today, it's hard to think of many industries that are not dominated by a few behemoths. In department stores, newspapers, banking, health insurance, supermarkets, domestic airlines, internet services providers, baby food and beer, the big four hold more than 80% of the market. You want to see this lack of choice, it's replicated in many other advanced countries. Just look at some of the recent bestsellers. Scott Galloway's 2017 book on the tech giants, called The Four. Ian Gow and Stuart Kell's 2018 book on the accounting book of your profession, called The Big Four. Even P. Diddy's new reality show is called The Four Battle for Star, probably the most competitive of the three industries. But Murphy wasn't just concerned about concentration. His second major concern was the impact of anti-competitive conduct, particularly on suppliers and small businesses. Again, such practices haven't disappeared. One example is the long payment terms imposed on suppliers during recent years by major Australian firms like BHP, Procter & Gamble, Mars, Kellogg's and Heinz. Another example is in farming. Now farming is a pretty competitive sector, but they get squeezed by the suppliers and squeezed by their buyers. They purchase pesticides, fertilisers and seeds from just a few sellers. And then they find their life tough when they sell their produce to a small number of processors and supermarkets. There's also been problems created by the poor regulation of privatised monopolies. When a monopoly asset is placed in private hands, our economics textbooks predict that prices will rise well above the marginal cost of production that should govern pricing in a competitive market. In the absence of appropriate regulation or oversight, we shouldn't be surprised if this is exactly how monopoly owners behave. Whether it's a port or an airport, it's important to ensure that governments don't just get gains from selling an asset, which are then offset by losses to consumers from higher prices. An economy with the, just a few big firms may also be bad news for startups. The Economist recently reported that around the fangs, Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix and Google, there's now a kill zone in which companies are either acquired or quashed. Murphy's third and most important concern was the impact that anti-consumer conduct had in weakening competition. In 1973, he warned that in consumer transactions, unfair practices are widespread. The existing law is still founded on the principle known as caveat emptor, let the buyer beware. That principle may have been appropriate for transactions conducted in village markets. It has ceased to be appropriate. Things aren't much better today. The list of companies reprimanded by the competition watchdog of the Federal Court over the last few years is like a who's who at the top end of town. Jetstar, Virgin, Arnott's, Optus, Harvey Norman franchisees, Kogan, Unilever. We've had Kimberly Clark sell us flushable wipes that are about as flushable as a bath mat. Nurofen sells a variety of different pain medications, where the only real difference was the packaging. Heinz has marketed fruit and vegetable products to children with six times more sugar than your average apple. Dulox sold us cooling paint that doesn't actually cool. 
Uncle Toby sold us protein nuts that don't contain protein. And Woolworths sold us deep fryers with handles that didn't always stay attached. Consumer breaches can also harm competitors. As when Coles was found to have wrongly claimed that its bread was freshly baked in store, with the effect of harming smaller bakeries that really did bake their loaves on the premises. So you might be asking yourself, what went wrong? Back in the 1960s and 1970s, Murphy warned us repeatedly of the dangers of market concentration. He warned us that anti-competitive conduct was rife. He warned us that suppliers, small businesses and startups were at risk. And to address the concern, he put in place the Trade Practices Act. It remains a powerful piece of legislation. The chief problem isn't the law, it's the economics. At its core, the Competition and Consumer Act embodies economic concepts. And as Murphy noted, there's a limit to the extent to which such considerations can be treated in legislation as legal concepts capable of being expressed with absolute precision. It didn't stop Parliament trying, of course, and the result is a very long act. Indeed, Alan Fells argues Australia's competition legislation is the longest such law in the world, perhaps a function of spelling out for judges the economic principles to be considered. But how we understand, interpret and think about each of these economic concepts can fundamentally change the purpose of Murphy's legislation and the way it's applied. And this is what's happened in Australia and why I believe competition has weakened and inequality has worsened. So how has economic thinking on competition changed? Broadly speaking, there's three schools of thought when it comes to competition policy. The first is what's referred to as the Industrial Organisation School. If you think market concentration is bad, you're not a fan of mergers and big companies, this is the school for you. According to this view, competition and the performance of markets are determined by the structure of an industry. An industry with only a few competitors tends to be less competitive than one with many firms. The school argues that concentrated markets made it easier for cartels to form, to engage, for firms to engage in practices like predatory pricing. The industrial organisation schools traditionally associated with researchers at Harvard from the 1930s to the 1960s. They're traditionally suspicious of mergers. The merger resulted in what was seen to be a conflict of interest through vertical integration, such as a dominant manufacturer buying up retailers. Then this school would tend to advocate for the merger to be blocked, fearing it would give the firm an unfair advantage over other retailers. School number two is the Chicago School, which emerged in the 1970s and associated with the School of Economics based in the Windy City. If you think the industrial organisation school is rubbish, that big firms are good because they can produce stuff more cheaply and compete more effectively overseas, and aren't a threat anyway because the free market will punish them if they try anything dodgy, then this is a school for you. Represented by US judges such as Richard Posner and Robert Bork, and economists such as George Stickler and Milton Friedman, the Chicago School reject the structuralist view of the industrial organisation school. If a firm tries to charge a higher price, they argue, it'll get punished by the market. Competitors dive in to take market share. And if there's no competitors right then, new ones will enter. If a firm tries to charge a lower price to predatorily damage its competitors, 
they'll suffer a loss which they can't recoup. Because as soon as they try to charge higher prices later, more competitors will enter. So you don't see predatory pricing because it's irrational in the first place. For the Chicago school, market concentration can be more a virtue than a vice. And it's not a sign of market power, but the result of superior efficiencies. Large firms can produce more with less. And if the market delivers larger, large firms, then they must tell you something about efficiency rather than about barriers to entry. Industrial organisation scholars tended to argue for the blocking of mergers where firms uh, possess only small market shares, even if it led to provable efficiencies. Chicago School saw most mergers as being good. And being academia, there's been some search for middle ground between the Industrial Organisation School and the, post, and the, and the Chicago School. Enter the post-Chicago School, emerging in the late 1980s and early 1990s, which has tended to learn from both and characterised by a richer factual analysis of individual cases and the application of models such as strategic game theory models. The post-Chicago school emphasised the importance of strategic behaviour between firms, noting that firms actively attempt to affect market conditions through strategic behaviour. So, what does all this mean for Australia? I think I'm misrepresenting the dead by saying that Lionel Murphy was probably a student of the Industrial Organisation School. He was sceptical of the benefits of large mergers and concerned by the risk posed by market concentration of facilitating anti-competitive and anti-consumer conduct. But his Trade Practices Act and the economic concept in it weren't immune to changes in economic thinking. While industrial the Industrial Organisation School dominated thinking and competition policy the time the Act was passed, the view of the Chicago School rose to prominence in the early 1980s, an era coinciding with the rise of Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher. Now, while it's true that Australia's courts have been less influenced by the Chicago School than those in America, the significant influence of the Chicago School and Australia's courts has been documented by many thoughtful Australian scholars including Catherine McMahon, Stephen Carones, Alex Bruce and David Round. To take one example, one area that the Chicago schools influenced is vertical restraints. For example, a manufacturer might limit what its distributors can do with the product, including the prices they can charge through licensing or price restrictions. The industrial organisation school sees such restraints as being problematic because they allow firms to leverage power from one market to another. So a powerful manufacturer might impose its market power at the retail level, potentially killing off competitive competition and spreading their influence. By contrast, the Chicago School sees any attempt to regulate vertical restraints as misconceived, arguing that such restraints can improve seamless supply chains from manufacturer to distributor to retailer to consumer. It argues that restraints are generally explicable on the basis of efficiencies, such as preventing free riding, and therefore good for consumer welfare. The Australian case of Melway concerned a firm that published and distributed street directories through its own selective distribution system. I should say, for the millennials in the room, a street directory is kind of what you get if you printed out a lot of pages from Google Maps and bound them together. In this case, 
Nelways refused to supply its fruit directory to a company called Auto Fashions after it discovered that Auto Fashions was distributing the directories itself, competing with Nelways' own distribution channels. Consistent with American authorities, the majority found there was no problem with Nelway blocking supply to Auto Fashions. They concluded that limiting intra-brand competition, such as limiting the competition between Nelway and Auto Fashions in distribution, could actually help rather than harm efficiencies. Fire courts also considered economic efficiency arguments critical to the Chicago School's reasoning on market concentrations regarding misuse of market power provisions. Until last year, these provisions prevented the firm from taking advantage of its substantial market power for the purpose of damaging a competitor. The High Court has, however, held that a firm which undertakes some act which damages its competitor is not in breach of this provision if the act was for the primary purpose of improving efficiency. It's called the legitimate business rationale test. Another example of where the schools have clashed is in the case of predatory pricing where a firm deliberately charges a price that's below cost to push its competitors out of the market and scare new ones from coming in. The challenge for our courts is how you prove it. The approach taken by the industrial organisation school is to first look at the market and determine whether a firm could make more profit by temporarily pricing low to drive rivals out of business. They see the situation where that might be quite an attractive strategy for a large incumbent. The second part of the test is whether a firm setting prices below average variable costs, and if both tests are met, this is presented as evidence of predatory pricing. The Chicago School takes a different approach, and as I mentioned, sees predatory pricing as being fundamentally irrational. If a firm wants to charge below cost, so there. That's great news for consumers who want ultra-cheap goods and services. And even if it can temporarily kill off some competitors, as soon as it tries to increase prices, new firms enter and prevent it doing so. The post-Chicago school would say it's all too simple and that this ignores the strategic ways in which firms try to shape markets in their own favour. So a firm engaging in predatory pricing might, for example, fire a warning shot to new entrants, suggesting that it will undercut them by ramping up production, which could have a chilling effect on production and competition. Historically, our courts have been more in line with the industrial organisation approach, as epitomised in the 1992 decision of Eastern Express, in which a majority of the High Court opted for an approach of assessing the firm's costs and determining whether they were pricing below it. But in the years that followed, the High Court's approach shifted a little in favour of the Chicago School. For those who were faithful to the Chicago School, the notion of recoupment was easily answered firms wouldn't be able to recoup, recoup, recoup their, uh, their losses. And in the 2003 Boral case concerning the supply of concrete masonry products, the High Court adopted a position much closer to the Chicago School than the Industrial Organisation School. I'll go into this in more detail in the written version of this talk. A third critical area of the Chicago School's influence in Australian courts is on barriers to entry, which is a critical economic concept in our competition law. If you've got low barriers of entry, mergers are more likely to be approved on the grounds that there's less of a risk for having large oligopolists. Barriers and market contestability help courts decide whether a firm has substantial market power and therefore whether it could abuse that market power. And they're relevant to determining whether horizontal and vertical agreements 
have anti-competitive effects. Chicago School tends to view barriers to entry as low. Even when there's big economies of scale, like supermarkets, where you might have Coles and Woolworths owning hundreds of stores that are vertically integrated, from retail to wholesale distribution, even manufacturing, the Chicago School views this as simply being the scale required to compete, not a barrier to entry. And that's particularly the case for strategic barriers to entry, where firms might invest in excess capacity or lock in long-term contracts to scare off potential competitors. The Chicago School tends to discount these as barriers to entry, given its trust in the ability of markets to punish those who try. In the Boral case, the High Court expressly considered the post-Chicago School view that firms might use strategic barriers, but ultimately deferred to the approach of the Chicago School, concluding that where structural barriers to entry are low, it isn't legitimate for a firm to base a finding of substantial market power simply on incidents of abuse of power or strategic entry-deterring tactics in that market. The influence of the Chicago School isn't limited to our courts. Surveying Australian legislative history, Maxine Rich concludes the Chicago School thinking has played a significant role in shaping emerging laws, albeit, again, less than the United States. Stephen Coronas similarly concludes that Australia's current merger law reflects Chicago School thinking according to which mergers should generally be allowed to the point of duopoly in the name of efficiency. Australia's mergers laws are contained primarily in Section 50 of Lionel Murphy's Trade Practices Act. And given Murphy was staunchly anti-Chicago in his thinking, it wasn't until after the dismissal that the Chicago view got its run. After the dismissal, the Fraser government with ministerial responsibility given to a young man with big glasses named John Howard, set about reforming Murphy's Act. The Fraser government was much more sympathetic to the Chicago arguments, particularly the argument that Australia's firms need to achieve scale to compete internationally. Section 50 was their primary target. Under Murphy's Act, a merger would be opposed if it resulted in a substantial lessening of competition. For the Fraser government, that was too onerous. So they changed the Act. Now a merger would only be opposed if it resulted in or substantially strengthened a position to control or dominate a market. The merger guidelines of the then Trade Practices Commission also adopted the Chicago School's approach. As Rich points, it, points out, <coughs> under its merger guidelines, the TPC has adopted a general formulation of market which applies to both product and geographic market definition. It largely reflects the price-based analysis advocated by Chicago's school proponent, Judge Posner. The 1999 version of the merger guidelines had a similarly Chicagoan feel. The first substantive paragraph of the guidelines referred to the important role of mergers in allowing firms to achieve efficiencies, such as economy of scale, synergies and risk spread. Thankfully, the ACCC's most recent guidelines have deviated significantly. The 2008 guideline outlines uh, the uh, prim uh, primary change to the guidelines since the previous version, noting that they now have an increased emphasis on the competitive theories of harm and the effect of constraints, which facilitate a more integrated analysis. They do acknowledge that efficiencies may constitute a public benefit, but emphasise that we need to be sure this outweighs the public detriment from the substantial lessening of competition.
and Australia's legislative approach to mergers and acquisitions has shifted. Following the report of the Cooney Commission, Committee, the Keating Government in 1993 restored Murphy's original substantial lessening of competition test. But for some sectors, this came too late. In 2002, Alan Fells pointed out that the Fraser Government's dominance test failed to prevent a significant category of mergers that were likely to substantially lessen competition. He noted a series of mergers that went through under the dominance test which wouldn't have been allowed under Murphy's substantial lessening of competition test. These include the mergers between Coles and Meyer, News Limited and Herald and Weekly Times, Ansett Airlines and East West Airlines. Each of those industries now rank as some of Australia's most concentrated markets. These are just a few examples where Australia's thinking on competition has lurched towards the Chicago School. The fundamental problem, however, is that a growing body of research and many years of empirical evidence are casting doubt over the views of that school. To put it bluntly, it appears increasingly to be the case that Lionel Murphy's concerns from almost 50 years ago were correct. The strongest evidence of this is that the Chicago School is itself stepping back from its previous position. Last year, the Chicago School held a summit on the threat the monopolies posed to the American economy. Such an event would have been unheard of last century. The economists quipped that convening a conference supporting competition concerns in the Windy City was like holding a symposium on sobriety in New Orleans. What's changed, they asked. The facts. The pendulum has swung heavily in favour of the incumbent businesses. I've already referred to the evidence that many Australian markets are highly concentrated. We're seeing a steady decline in the rate at which new businesses are being created, from an average of 16% before 2010 to 13% now. Meanwhile, the number of mergers and acquisitions has increased fivefold since the early 1990s. And if you want to know whether firms are concerned about competition, don't just listen to what they say, listen to what they don't say. A study by AXA trawled through thousands of annual reports by US companies and found that the use of the word competition in those reports has declined 75% since the year 2000. Big firms are a whole lot less worried about competition than they were in the past. Or we can look at the markups being charged by firms. An analysis of firms' financial statements looked at the evolution of markups over the last four decades. Around the early 1980s, the average price charged by big listed firms was about the marginal cost of production. By the early 2000s, the average prices were 40% above the marginal cost of production. Now they're 60% above marginal cost. And market concentration may be suppressing investment more generally. One study found that industries with more concentration tend to invest less and that the vast, vast bulk of the decline in US investment since 2000 can be explained by less competitive markets and increased ownership of stock by institutional investors. Another big challenge for a lot of advanced economies is weak wage growth. Now, wages are fundamentally driven by the competition between firms for workers. So less competition means lower wages. It can happen directly, as in the case when Apple, Google, Intel, Intuit and Pixar were taken to court by the US Department of Justice for secretly agreeing not to hire each other's workers to avoid bidding up wages. 
It was a great arrangement for those companies, not so good for workers who at a time when their skills ought to have been in high demand were struggling to get promotions. At a macro level, David Order and his colleagues analysed panel data since the early 1980s and found that the industries where market concentration had risen the most had the largest decline in the labour share. That's even attracted the attention of the world's central bankers who made this very issue their focus at their annual gathering in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Another Chicago school argument put forward to justify concentrated markets is that barriers to entry are low, easily surmountable. They say that if there are large profits, more firms will easily enter the market. Well, we can test this in Australia by looking at whether the most profitable industries have seen the largest entry by new, new firms. We looked across 15 industries at the correlation between profits in 2008 and the percentage change in the number of firms over the next eight years. In mining, for example, profits increased 42%, but the number of firms remained unchanged. In professional services, profits went up 62%, and the number of firms increased only 9%. Looking across all industries, the correlation between profits and new entry is a modest 0.3. Post-Chicago School literature has emphasised the chilling effect that, can, that strategic barriers to entry can have on competition. And there's evidence that leading US firms in the airline, coffee, oil, shipping, sugar and tobacco industries have used predatory pricing to keep competitors out. Lena Khan of the US Federal Trade Commission says of Amazon, although it's clocked staggering growth, it generates meagre profits, choosing to price below cost and expand instead. In addition to being a retailer, it's now a marketing platform, a delivery and logistics network, a payment service, a credit lender, an auction house, a major book publisher, a producer of television and films, a fashion designer, a hardware manufacturer and a leading host of cloud computer space. Traditional barriers of entry are just as important. If you want to create a search engine that can compete with Google, you don't just need a smarter algorithm. You need a set of servers large enough to store some version of the internet. There's only a handful of firms in the world with the resources to do that. We see it in their advertising too. Total spending on online advertisers has risen in recent years. 90% of the growth last year went to Google and Facebook. And if there's one thing that all these challenges feed into, whether it's weak wages, a declining labour share, reduced employment, increased markups, or less, com less competition for workers, it's inequality. While competition has declined in Australia, inequality has risen. Since 1975, real earnings at the 10th percentile of wages went up 24%. In the middle of the wage distribution, they went up 46%. At the top of the wage distribution, they went up 74%. If those cleaners and checkout workers had enjoyed the same percentage gains as surgeons and financial dealers, they'd be $16,000 a year better off. Since 2012, real wage growth for Australian workers has been close to zero. So to conclude, Australia has a competition problem. There isn't enough of it. Anti-competitive conduct is rife, Consumers are treated badly, and there's been a massive increase in markups. 
Much of the popular analysis focuses on, te- focuses on technological changes. We have debated the potential for the internet and mobile computing to provide the fangs with more market dominance than their old economy forebears. But heavily concentrated markets are also a reminder of the need to ensure the correct philosophy undergirds Australian competition policy. Although less influential here than in the US, the Chicago School's views on competition have influenced our laws and our policies. Chicago School viewed market concentration as a virtue more than a vice. So mergers as good, vertical restraints and predatory pricing as either benign or efficient. Market power is temporary. And a growing body of evidence suggests these views were misplaced. Indeed, the Chicago School itself is beginning to backtrack. To cease its blind faith in the absolute ability of markets to self-regulate and deliver competitive outcomes. When it comes to competition policy, as in so many other areas of law, Lionel Murphy has proven himself to be almost eerily prophetic. The warnings he gave when he was writing his act and when he was sitting on the bench ring true as true today as they did back then. He saw market concentration as a problem. He saw the necessity for strong competition laws to protect the competitive process and consumers and support the creation of new businesses. He warned there was more to competition than low prices, critical as that is. There's a strong progressive case for repositioning how we think about competition for ensuring we don't take an overly permissive approach to mergers, taking a more circumspect approach to claims of efficiency when considering anti-competitive conduct, giving the regulator the investigatory powers it needs, making sure penalties aren't just another cost of doing business, considering the impact of anti-competitive conduct on innovation, and recognising that unchecked market power can harm workers as well as customers. Inequality isn't simply a function of taxation and government programs, important as they are. Focusing more on the competitive process, the structure of markets and the incentives these structures create for firms will play an important role in reducing inequality. The functioning of our market, the adequacy of our regulators and institutions, the structure of our firms and the interactions between them shape Australian egalitarianism. I've spent much of my working life studying inequality and the practical things we can do to reduce it. And I'm convinced that competition policy is a critical part of the story. Many of those on the other side of Parliament haven't always agreed with me. Many of them don't believe we have a problem with inequality, let alone a problem with competition. But I'm confident that as the body of evidence continues to grow, those voices will continue to become quieter. And for those who remain unconvinced and think I'm talking nonsense, well, that's okay too. After all, I am entitled to be an agitator.